Welcome back to the Locks Talks podcast. Today we got episode three with a special guest, Mo Hamoudi. Mo is currently a public defender in the state of Washington. He grew up in the Middle East. He shares a story about how he came to America um, and how he became a public defender in general. He shares his experiences of what he does in his profession, who he has to deal with, and his own thoughts on everything that's going on right now in the world. Um, we discuss the topics of the defending the police, um, the, the system of criminal justice in the United States right now and where it's at, where it needs to be. Um, it's a great listen. There's a lot of great topics that we discuss throughout this entire podcast. And so without further ado, here is Locks Talks Episode 3 with Mo Hamoudi. Thank you and enjoy. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, Four, three, two, one. Yeah, is is so to start things off, is it weird now like with like like hearings and stuff, is that all on Zoom? Yeah, so right now uh, the courts are shut down because of the virus and everything we do is um, uh, online and we use a software card called um, WebEx. There are no trials because um, the chief judge does not feel it is safe enough to bring large groups of jurors in the courtroom. Makes sense. And so what is happening is is that a lot of the clients are um, waiting at the jail to get into court, and um, they can't. Um, and then, But they do get into court for smaller matters like uh, conference hearings or a sentencing, yeah. uh, so long as they agree that um, they can have the hearing over this platform, digital platform, because you have a right to be physically in court. Yeah. That's actually a, a rule. Well, yeah. and, and in order for it to um, uh, not apply, you have to agree to waive it. So some people are getting in court, but majority of people are not. And is it, you just go in, you know, in your house, dressed up, and like, is it like a, a call? Is it like kind of like a FaceTime kind of thing? I get on there. I got a, a web platform. Um, I wear shirt and a tie and yeah. a suit jacket, but I got shorts on. Yeah, of course, classic. Um, <laughs> you just got to make sure you don't yeah. stand up. No, definitely not. And uh, and we do the hearings. It's uh, you know, it's uh, it's. I wouldn't say it's uh, perfect. Um, it would, sometimes the hearings take a long time. There are technological challenges. It's frustrating because you're not with the clients, you know, and you're not able to, like, talk to them and Definitely. be next to them and have a conversation with them. I haven't seen any of my clients face-to-face since before the pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, that's a huge level of frustration for them because they're making these important decisions and they need my guidance, they need my counsel, and when I'm not there talking to them face-to-face, it's harder for you to build a relationship with them to help them make very important decisions. It's definitely important. Uh, And uh, I don't know, I mean, if you're going to make a decision about your future, about your freedom, you would want to be able to meet face-to-face with the person that's helping you with that. Yeah. So that's been been a real challenge for us. Um, And things are getting clogged up in the system. There's a backlog. You know, the prosecutor's office is still arresting people, bringing in new cases. So what will happen is at some point, there's just going to be, you know, a huge backlog of cases and we'll see what happens. I don't know what's what's going to happen, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, things are probably, you know, getting a little 
like worse too with like you know like the I mean I guess it was only like a month ago so like riots and this and that throughout probably more arrests are being made. Um, I so, mean, am I right about that? Well, no, so I work in a federal system, and a lot of uh, the protests are are there are people that are in the protests that are getting arrested, mm-hmm. but those are partic- those are state matters. So rare is the occasion that you bring an individual who's protesting uh, their city and state government, they bring them into federal court. Uh, federal um, court is for a limited set of cases. The federal government doesn't have jurisdiction over general crimes. They have uh, jurisdiction over uh, a small group of crimes. And, yeah. and it is for the state to decide um, issues related to uh, the public safety of its communities, you are seeing some arrests in, in the yeah. county system. Because I'm just of seeing protests. more stuff just because of, like, I mean, obviously with everything going on. I'm just seeing, it seems to me like there would just be more, it would be more clogged up because there would be more issues, more people, more than that. There isn't. That's not, that's not, uh, that, no. I, I haven't, in our system, it's not been a backlog because of those cases. Um, I think that we're just more sensitive to the issues discussed in the protests because those issues have been prevalent in the criminal legal system for a long time. Um, um, now they're just, you know, people are on a larger scale um, bringing it to the attention of the public through protests. Yeah. And some of those protests uh, end up in result in property being damaged and uh, uh, people getting hurt. Yeah. Um, that's been historically true well, for yeah, I mean, it's protests. Kind of a given. Yeah, it can happen. What, what do you mean issues? Like you say, the, the protests are bringing like, issues out, like people are kind of seeing now, even though it's been... You mentioned like the, like the legal system has been going on for, what, decades? I, I specifically, like, issues. Well, I mean, the issues that uh, I would talk about is is that uh, there's in the criminal legal system there's huge problems with um, how people are treated and when you look at the numbers you start to realize that there is a a disparity that uh, people who are uh, african-american indigenous latino primarily men um, for they're ending up in the criminal legal system at higher rates than their white counterparts. Yeah. And um, uh, one would say, you, you would try to see, you would want to see well, why is that happening? And part of the reason that's happening is, is that there's uh, systems in place that allow for these results to occur. And a lot of these people are getting arrested for nonviolent offenses. Um, like what? I drugs. mean, yeah, like drugs. Okay, I was gonna ask, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, wait, wait, so like systems, you said there's like systems in place. Like, what do you mean by that? So the systems in place are that uh, where the resources of the city and the county are directed towards uh, investigating and prosecuting crimes. That's one of the systems. So a lot of the money that comes in to the city and the county to investigate crimes to the police departments is directed towards investigating drug crimes. Yeah. And they come in form of grants. They come from the Department of Justice. Um, and also, uh, when when the police department gets this money and they go out and they investigate crimes, then they have what's called discretion. 
So when you arrest somebody and you catch them with drugs, you know, you have a decision to make, you know, be it a juvenile or a young man mm-hmm. or, or maybe somebody older. What are you going to do? You can arrest them and you bring them into court. Uh, when you come into court, uh, then the prosecutor decides what kind of crime to charge that person with. Wouldn't it just be a drug charge? Well, it would, be a, it would be a drug charge, but then um, a, a lot then happens from that point on in the sense of do you want to give that person the opportunity to avoid a conviction? What are you doing for that person to make sure you understand why they're involved with drugs in the first place? Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact is is that the system is skewed against individuals from minority backgrounds. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with money. Um, I, you can go into some of the best high schools here in, this, in, our, in our community. Uh, you can go to prep or maybe or university or, or you can go out to great areas. You can go out to very nice areas in Bellevue. Yeah. You can go into Mercer Island. And they have their drug problems everywhere in the schools. Does. You can find it anywhere. You can anywhere. find it anywhere. anywhere. Um, if you wanted to, you could set up an undercover sting operation in these communities and you could uh, um, arrest a whole host of students and charge oh, them with, with serious drug offenses, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. And then you could uh, go aggressively after them and secure felony convictions for mm-hmm. them, yeah. and it would be catastrophic for them and their future. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. But why, and the question to ask is, why isn't that happening in those communities? But why is it happening in the communities that are poorer? or who live on the, on, on the margins of our economic landscape. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a level of unfairness. Yeah. Um, um, but it, wh- like, my question is, like, is exactly that. Like, why is it happening? Is it because it's, I mean, I, don't, I really don't know because that's a good comparison because, like you said, you can find drugs and this and that anywhere. But, like, why is it specifically, do you think, happening more um, in, you know, in... African-American communities and poor communities and stuff like that? Like, why would that be more prevalent to where it's somewhere else? The easy answer is it's racism. Yeah. And But racism manifests itself in a whole host of ways. Uh, there is racism that is explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, we could go back to the... Uh, there's racism that is violent. We go back to the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and even way back... Uh, you know, there was violent racism. Yeah. Um, the violence is uh, taken on different forms. Uh, it's not as explicit. And now it's much more implicit that it's baked into the systems. Yeah. When you are tasked with going and enforcing laws, mm-hmm. when you're tasked with going into communities, you're given directives to go into these communities and in the central district in south seattle and you do what you're being told then you're collecting individuals and the arrests are occurring and so on and so on and the responses is that well no it's not we're not being racist we're just doing what the rules tell us to do yeah. but when the system is producing racist results then you who has the authority and the discretion to uh, arrest people or to go out and enforce the laws, what are you going to do about that? Because you have the power. Yeah. The people don't have the power. No. And, um, and what the protests are, are a response to that, saying you're not exercising your power responsibly. Yeah. Therefore, you should be 
you should not have the power. And the, the whole process of defunding the police is based on that. Do you agree with that? Do you uh, like defunding the police? I think that the um, label that they've used is a label that is, uh, could, could mislead people into yeah. thinking that we want to let people go out and commit crimes. Because I honestly, I have, I, I have a, like, a, when I see, like, defund the police, to me it's like, like, why? I mean, and I'm not saying this in, like, well, you know, what's wrong with people? I generally, like, um, am confused about a lot of things. That's why I have a lot of, like, you know, a lot of different you know, people on, these, on my show so far is because it's, I, I don't know a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would feel like you would be the best person to explain it to me. When I see, like, defund the police, I was in uh, Ballard yesterday. I was um, at the market, and I had the lady holding up that sign that said defund the police. And I wanted to go ask her, like, what that means because I generally don't know. I feel like crimes, you know, would increase. I feel like, I mean, taking, you know, money away from people that, I mean, I know there's not, there's a lot of, like, great people. There's a lot of bad people, too, in the police. But I feel like wouldn't that just make everything worse by taking money away from people that, you know, protect us? In a way? I think you should next time go talk to the person, by the way, and just ask them a question. Say, hey, can you help me understand what this means? I think it would be very helpful. But I think that the way I would look at it is this way, and maybe this would be something that would be understandable um, for you. Um, Let's say you go open up a business, Mm -hmm. and you have a business, and your business is uh, making uh, money initially, and then your business stops making money. It's, it has a loss. It has, let's say, a 30 40% of loss annually. Um, at some point, what are you going to do about that business if it's not making money or it's losing money? I mean, if there's kind of like no hope, I might have to shut it down. You might have to shut it down. Yeah. But what else might you do? I would probably, I don't know, I'd need more money, work harder. I don't know. <laughs> if, if, if I'm keep losing money all the time, First of all, like if there was kind of no hope, like I said, I might have to just shut it down. I don't, I don't really know what the answer is. Let's say your business is not the type of business that you can just shut down. Okay. But whatever your business model is, you're losing 30, 40% a year. I'd probably have to put myself out there more. I don't know, advertise myself, try to get more work done. I don't know. So you would rethink the business model. You would bring uh, yeah. in a new strategy. In a way, yeah, advertise you, more people, rethink yeah. what I was doing because clearly it wasn't working in the first I, place. I want you to look at defunding the police in that same light. We are not producing outcomes that our society expects from us. We have people who are going through the system, they're coming out, and they're getting wrapped up into the system. And at a rate of 30 to 40% of the people are getting wrapped up into new crimes. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's their responsibility. You know, they're making the choices. But the fact is, is that it's our resources, our time, our energy, and we're paying out of pocket. So at some point, you got to look at the business model and say, this company within this marketplace is running at a loss year after year after year after year. Okay? Okay. So the logical thing to do is to not necessarily defund the police, which is, although the label says that's what it is, is that do you re-examine what is the purpose of policing and reallocate resources accordingly and come up with a new business plan. That is essentially what defunding the police is. What they're saying is, is that 
we're spending hundreds of, you know, millions of dollars, millions and millions of dollars in policing in a particular way. However, we're not able to produce the results that we expect as a society. Non-racist results. Not just non-racist results, cost-effective results. Like what? Well, you know how much it costs to arrest somebody and bring them into court? I actually have no idea. It, it costs several thousand dollars. For what? Just Picking them up, the police them. officer, putting them in handcuffs, putting them into jail, getting them a lawyer, coming into court, having them show up. So you think that it shouldn't cost that much? Or do you think, like, what do you think about that? I mean, it's going to cost that much. Yeah. You cannot reduce that cost. It's just saying that instead of going through that process when it's not working and it's not effective and the person is not a... a uh, a, uh, is not a violent person, is not a person who's going after vulnerable people in the community like children or the elderly. There's a large class of people who are getting wrapped up in the system for what you would call status of life offenses. Just like smaller it, things? Yeah, it's just things like that it is, a, it is a consequence of their choice and who they are. It's the status of their life. Um, you don't ever hear somebody who uses drugs calling the police to report a crime. Using drugs is the only crime that the police go out to find. When yeah. somebody gets robbed, they pick up the phone and say, okay, I just I got robbed. Yeah. Right? So, so what I'm saying is, is that a lot of these offenses can be managed in a different way, a more cost-effective way. There are... Uh, so that it reduces the burden on policing and it saves us a lot of money. We have to think new ways of, of, of challenging this, of, of facing this challenge. So defunding the police is just saying, you're spending all this money on the police department. Why don't we cut you, your budget, by a third or whatever the approach is suggested, whatever they decide or mm-hmm. whatever it ends up being, and take that money and use it in a more effective way. Like what? Like what's more effective? Well, a lot of things that have proven to be effective is diversionary programs and programs that provide um, uh, treatment, programs that provide housing, uh, job training, uh, programs that provide mental health care. These are the things that people need. I would agree. And we need, we're obligated to our communities. Um, if somebody that you love is committed a crime, you're not going to abandon them. Of course not. You're going to go and try to help them, right? All we're saying is, is that why don't you do this for somebody who's not your family member? That's all we're saying. That's all the movement is saying. Yeah. So, you know, this is, this is democracy at work. I mean, it's, I don't think what we're going through is a bad thing. I think it's wonderful. We are, we're experiencing democracy live, and people are going to city council. People are advocating for it. People are advocating against it. And then people who have been voted for are on city council. They're going to rule. And then, and then there will be battles in the court systems. And then there will be another election. Just the yeah. way this, I think it's wonderful. I don't think there's anything bad. I about think it. I think it's just a, I mean, an interesting, wild, like the last few months, especially with yeah. everything going on. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's like terrible or anything. I think it's cool. I went down to Chaz Chop, whatever, a few yeah. months ago. I I didn't understand. I didn't understand what that was really. 
I just thought, I mean, that kind of stuff um, is interesting to me. Like, I, 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 I mean, I think it's, it's like a cool time to be alive, kind of. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's great that we live in a, in a country where people can express themselves in those ways, yeah. that they can occupy a physical space. And, and they can say, that's how, I, that's how I wanted to express my dissent towards the status quo. And, uh, you know, I thought it was really good that the city allowed them to stay there for a little while. You know, sometimes people just need to be heard, mm-hmm. you know, and if you lock them out, if you keep them excluded from expressing themselves, they become frustrated and then they lose confidence in the system. I think it's very important that people have confidence with the systems in place, the government and the institutions that, that run their day-to-day lives because all these institutions, they belong to the people. Mm-hmm. They don't belong to anybody else. They belong to the people. And uh, I thought it was great that, that the mayor allowed, allowed people to express themselves and then, and then the people who objected to it were allowed to file a lawsuit and object to it and express their frustrations and it played itself out and they're gone. And and so what I'm saying is is that um, uh, I think that the system is operating the way it's supposed to. Uh, there's nothing that's happening that's like radically bad uh, or terrible. Uh, the truth is being revealed. Yeah. I, the reason I, I, I would agree with you on, I think it's great that like, the city is letting people's voices be heard and this and that. But for me, I look at it as like, you know, shutting down six you know, blocks or I don't know how much it was of, you know, part of a city where people need to go, like, work, live, this and that. And then you have, what, like, a 19-year-old kid that got shot and killed there. Like, I I look at it kind of like, like, I totally think people's voices should be heard. And like you said, I'm totally on board with you on that. But then I look at it, like, it seemed like I didn't understand, like, what that did. Like, I felt like there was more damage done, lives lost, um, you know, than there was, like, a positive out, like, outcome. Well, that's, that's terrible that, first of all, that somebody died. Um, and, and it's terrible that people destroy other people's property. It's terrible that people commit acts of violence against each other, and they say it's in the spirit of uh, exercising their First Amendment rights. I don't agree with that. I think that that's a crime, and you need to be held mm-hmm. accountable. Um, but what I'm very careful about doing is, is that... Um, I don't try to paint any situation with a broad brush that, you know, the acts of a very few people are then, uh, are, then, are then ascribed to everybody else. There's a lot of good people who are, who are expressing themselves in a peaceful way, in a, in a way that's, that's consistent with the way our system's set up. Um, so... But the fact is, is what history teaches us in this country is, is that with any legitimate protest, there is always violence. There's always property destruction associated with it. But that should not take away from the content of the protest. Um, the civil rights movement, there was always violence associated yeah. with it. And, uh, but you cannot take away from the substance of what the civil rights movement was trying to accomplish. Um, I mean, this country went to war with the South over slavery. Yeah. Horrifying acts of violence. Bad stuff. But the substance of what they were fighting for was so important that the violence was 
as the president said, was worth it. But I don't agree with violence. I mean, that's just my personal view. I mean, either. And and uh, and so, but I but I have to be. I, I understand that these things happen, and you just you know hope that that you know that when these things happen, they happen as peacefully as possible. Yeah. Um, but when people who are when a political group does not have access to power, they find other ways to try to get them voices get heard. And, and protest is the one way that is actually enshrined in the Constitution of the United States. Yeah. Because the, when, when, when... The right the, to peacefully assemble? Yeah. First Amendment? Yeah. And, and it, was, it was put into place because they knew when they created the document, the Constitution, that that right was more important to people who didn't have political power, not yeah. the people who did. Yeah. I, and it makes sense. And like I was saying, like I say, I don't, I'm not telling you like... Like, how the heck could you think this place is awesome? That I just, I look at it, like, specific ways, and I come here, like, so open-minded to where I want to know certain things. I didn't know what, like, anything about defunding the police. I didn't know that much about <laughs> a lot of these things. So it's good to be able to hear it from somebody, especially, you know, somebody like you who definitely knows a little bit more than I do or can help me understand it. Um, and that brings me to, like, there's definitely a lot of care. Like, you seem to, like, really care about a lot of things, like, on this level about, like, explaining like about the police and how the system's kind of crooked um like what specifically brought you into being like a public defender yeah um so i would go back i don't believe the system is crooked well i, mean, I think that there's shape to kind of like be unfair it, it, it creates unjust results i also think there's a, a majority of the police officers are good and decent people mm -hmm that they get up in the morning and they decide to do what they do because they really do care about what they want to do. I think that there are things that are happening is a lot, I mean, when you see acts of violence, like you've described somebody getting murdered by uh, an individual next to the CHOP yeah. area, well, you also see acts of violence committed by police officers that are unlawful and are mm -hmm. unjust. I would agree. The same principle applies. You cannot draw with a, uh, uh, you cannot paint with a broad brush the police generally based on yeah. the acts of many few or a totally. limited few people. So you, you would be a hypocrite if you said, well, you can't do it for one, but the other, yeah. everybody's bad. So I would say the same thing. There's a lot of police officers I know that are good and decent people that work very hard to keep these communities safe. Um, I think that ultimately it's for the community to decide what they want to do with their police departments. And uh, maybe uh, shifting resources from policing will end up um, will end up as a consequence increasing crime. Yeah. And then the community may have to redecide. That wasn't a good idea. Re, you know, defunding was not a good idea. We're going to have to refund the police. But it's more about coming together as a community and making the decisions. Making a decision and holding yourself accountable to your decisions. Yeah. That's, what's the, that's more important than what happens as a consequence, yeah. I think. Because then you know it's your decision. You tried it. It didn't work. You go back. Um, as far as me wanting to be a public defender, um, I think that um, I felt that in... I could maybe contribute some of my skills and talents to helping individuals who I believe are marginalized people. 
You know, people who are um, uh, charged with crimes are not popular people. Um, they're not people that people want to be friends with necessarily. Yeah. Um, they don't have political power, and they're entitled to a defense. And when I say defense, they're really entitled to an advocate. I, I thought that I would best serve my community by being an advocate for these individuals. And that's one of the primary reasons why I ended up in becoming a public defender. I mean, I went into the criminal defense uh, sector also because what I witnessed happened to this country after September 11th. Did you bring that closer? Just a little bit. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. When, when I, uh, after September 11th. So you've been a public defender for almost 20? No. No. No, after September 11th, I was in New York, I was in New York City. Oh, so you haven't lived I've here d- the whole time? No, I've not. I I grew up in the Middle East. I was born and raised there. I am where specifically? In Iran. Oh, really? Yeah. And wow, that was that's crazy. I I knew you grew up like foreign foreign area. That's what I heard, but I didn't know it was specifically there. Wow. So how long did you live there? 1977. I was born. I lived there to about 19. 19- 86. Okay. So was that, you know, did you live in bad areas? I, when I lived there, I lived through what was the Iran-Iraq war. So um, there were bombing raids. Uh, the country was in, in a war wow. with another country. And you, did you have to experience some of that stuff? Now, they would turn off the lights in our, in our, in our city, and there would be bombing raids, and you would hear the bombs that's blow crazy. up in the city, yeah. So is, is that why, I mean, what, you were wait till you're nine, then you left. Um, is, is that why you left? Or That's you, primary reason. Specifically, just was like, you can't do this anymore. No, the primary reason my mom decided that we, we should leave is because of that. And so we ended up leaving. We lived in Pakistan for about a year. And then after that, my mom got her visa with my stepdad, my sister and I. And then we came to the United States, mm-hmm. and we initially lived in Texas for a little bit, and then after- In the 80s? Yeah, yeah, I was in the 80s, and then it's 1987. And then we moved to Northern California. I went to elementary school there, middle school, um, high school, and when I was 21, I moved to New York City, um, I was, your, your family's still in California, though? Yeah, my mom and my sister were in California. And Why did you move to New York? I just wanted to go to college there. I just needed a change. And Indiana. that was when you were 21, so when, like, the 90s, right, or something like that? It was, I moved to New York in 2000. Oh, okay, yeah. I was going to say late 90s, but 2000, okay. Yeah. And then my, um, and then I went back to, uh, and my mom passed away. Um, after she passed away, I stayed in New York. I was there till about, I would say, 2007. Oh, so you were, like, living in New York when 9-11 happened? I was living in New York when it happened. And were you in college there? or I was in college. For, for what? Like I was, what were you majoring in? I was studying liberal arts. I, I was at a liberal arts school in New York City. So, where, so where did you, how close were you when that happened to... I lived up on uh, 159th and St. Nicholas, which was right above Harlem. And so I would say that's on the top of the Manhattan Island. And, and you know, the World yeah. Trade Center got hit down in 
Wall Street area. So um, my roommate woke me up, and we took the bus as far as we could downtown, and then we went down there together. Um, it was after it happened? Yeah. Did you, so was, was it after the, the buildings had collapsed and everything like that, or was it like midway through? It was, we were downtown when the buildings collapsed. Oh, wow. But we were not close enough where the ashes um, yeah. uh, there was consumed huge, us. Huge, yeah. The ash smoke or the plume consumed us. We were not that close. Um, and then, but after it collapsed, then we went all the way down there to try to help. Um, it was just incredible. That's it was, crazy. It was, uh, it was the most horrifying thing I think I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I mean, for you to be able to, like, actually have been there, like, there in the heart of the city when that happened, it's just, I couldn't imagine doing that, like, being there. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Wow. I did not, yeah, wow, that's crazy. I, I, I didn't know that. That's, yeah. Well, I mean, is it, that's what you said, like, kind of, made you want to do what you do you said after 9-11 like what specifically about 9-11 and you being there made you sorry about the sirens by the way that's okay <laughs> that's okay um i think that what's uh, what what happened was after september 11th you know i went through a period of trying to figure out what i wanted to do and i can't you know when you're in your 20s and you know when at least in my life and the life that i had lived um, you start to want to decide what, how, what kind of life do you want to continue to live? Like, what do you want to do with your future? And for me, it just, I was constantly trying to think and reflect on what it is I wanted to do. And the more and more um, I thought about it after September 11th, after my mother had passed, I realized I wanted to do something that mattered. I didn't know what it was exactly. Right. Um, and what I had observed after 9-11 is that how people can be driven by fear and anxiety and stress to make decisions that are not necessarily the right decisions. Yeah. And, um, and I didn't like that. You know, I just remember the way I was treated after September 11th. And how so? I was profiled. Um, my school asked me to come and identify myself and produce my documents. Um, the airports, I was, uh, um, you know, pulled aside. It, it was, it was challenging, you know, and I, yeah, and I was, I was afraid to like tell people what my real name was. My real name is Muhammad yeah. Ali Hamoudi, you know, I'm Middle Eastern. Yeah. And I didn't want to tell people those things. So, and what you saw in, in media and what you saw public sentiment that people didn't like people from yeah. the Middle East. No, I guess not, especially right after that happened. Yeah. And and then and then what I saw was how how laws were passed taking away people's rights. Like and what specifically? There was a lot of laws that were passed uh, uh, taking away rights to privacy. Um, like post 9-11? Yeah, post 9-11. And what, and, like what specifically? Well, there were laws that were passed that allowed the government to conduct surveillance on people's cell phones. Mm -hmm. uh, laws that were passed that were that allowed you know the government to uh, tap your phones, like Snowden kind of stuff. We're talking about it's just a Patriot Act. 
and and they gave the government a lot of power hmm. over its citizens. And I thought you would think that when really bad things happen, that you you stick to your values, you stick to your principles. That you you know I really feel that the people who did what they did on September 11th were criminals, and Completely. what they wanted wanted us to do was to change our, the way that we lived. I think that's what they really wanted to do. Make us change the way we lived. Make us compromise our values. Yeah. And, and I, I think that they were, that's what they wanted. And so I just saw things change. I saw the country change and I thought, well, how can I do something about it? I'm not going to sit on the sidelines and just complain. Yeah. I said, I'm going to go to law school. And I decided to go to law school. And in law school, I met one of my professors who encouraged me to get into criminal law. And I did. And, and pretty much the rest is history. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's great. What I get to do is I get to uh, go up against the government. And I get to use the law yeah. to, uh, to say what you're doing is not right. Yeah. And it's in front of a public arena and the, and the judges there and um, it's the most productive and constructive way uh, to try to uh, stand up for principles for me at least there's a lot of ways you can do it I, I just think that uh, um, you know rather than like sitting on the sidelines and complaining you know, I had a lot of friends who did that um, that's what I decided to do and was that was that so you started that in New York, right? No, no, I came back to California in 2007. I went to law school. I got out in 2010, passed the bar, and I've been practicing since 2010. I've been doing it 10 years. Wow. Yeah. And as that, that was California, then Washington. You moved up here? California and then Washington, correct. And why did you move up to Washington? <clears throat> I got a job at the Federal Public Defender, which is right downtown, so like a few blocks from here. Nice. And uh, because of my other job I originally had, I was traveling a lot uh, for work. And uh, my wife and I had our son Jude, and she said, you know, is there somewhere where you can work where you don't have to travel so much? And I interviewed, and I got the job here. Awesome. That's great. That's great. I was going to ask you where you're – so it was, you've been married since you were in California. Yeah, we've been – we just had our – uh, 11 year anniversary. Oh, nice! Congratulations. On, thanks on August yeah. 7th. Yeah. Oh wow! Okay, congratulations. Yeah, yeah it was a couple of few days awesome. ago. Awesome, awesome. That's good to hear. Um, <clears throat> so, is it? This is something that I was actually wondering about. Knowing you know you're a public defender, is it difficult to, like, for for your morals to defend somebody that you are pretty sure? Like, I mean, sometimes you you might not be sure if they are, but sometimes it's pretty obvious that they might. They you know they're completely in the wrong. Is that difficult for you to? You know, go out of your way and like try to defend somebody who um, definitely messed up and did something bad. I'd be lying if I told you it'd be easy, but I mean, it, that's not why I do what I do. Um, there are some people who have committed acts that are, you know, horrible. They've committed acts involving kids. Yeah, and um, and and so yes, it, it's it's very difficult. Um, but my job, there's there's my job, and then there's me. You know, my job is to objectively represent them, to help them through the system. I'm their advocate. 
I represent them, and that's what the Constitution requires of me. And I swore an oath to do that, yeah. and I take my oath very seriously. Um, there's another aspect is, is that, um, at least in my opinion, I think that um, uh, every person is worthy of redemption. I believe that every person deserves an extension of your empathy. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think part of the problem is is that when you're when when society can be so punitive, um, you never in in being so punitive, you lose sight of understanding why somebody behaved the way they did. And if you're truly interested in solving the problem, which is why people behave the way they do, you can only do that through redemption and empathy. You can't do that through punishment. When you punish somebody, you're not interested in their perspective. You're not interested in what drove them or caused them to behave the way they do. Yeah. All you're interested is in how you feel and you want closure for yourself. Um, but I think that uh, a better system is a system where both, both uh, accountability exists and also the ability to be redeemed. If those two uh, principles coexist in harmony together, then I think that you, you can live in a better society. Uh, there's a great book uh, written by uh, a Catholic Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and there is a book he wrote that's called No Future Without Forgiveness, and it was about the apartheid in South Africa. What's that? What's that? That's uh, where there was a system, basically, of slavery in South Africa where African-Americans, not African-Americans, Africans yeah. in South Africa did not have any rights, and there was a revolution. And uh, they, through Nelson Mandela, they were able to mm. uh, uh, liberate themselves. Uh, well, a lot of people committed a lot of heinous acts in in the South African government against South Africans. And they could have easily taken those people and uh, uh, tried them, convicted them, and sent them away to prison for a long time. But what they provided them was uh, another path, a path where they came in and they confessed their crimes and they asked for forgiveness. And they sought uh, reconciliation with those that they committed the crimes against. So right. you would be a person, for example, I committed a crime against. You would sit across the table. I would come and sit down in front of you, and I would tell you what I did to you. Yeah. And uh, I would confess it all, and I would seek your forgiveness. And you would either give it to me or not. But that process, they made it available to everybody. And if you did it, and you did it whole, wholeheartedly, they did not... Uh, prosecute you for the crime. They didn't put you in prison. It kept the peace. It was a very productive way of dealing with injustice. Now, it may not be practical to install, install that kind of system here in the United States, but you could do a combination for sure. Like, like how so? Because I feel like there's some people that do things that like you can't just be like, okay, like you tell me, we, kinda, we forgive each other, whatever, like, you know, and then you're fine. Like there's some people that should totally be held accountable, in my opinion. Like everyone... Everyone deserves, you know, to be heard and to have, you know, their, you know, go to court and this and that, you know, fair trial. I mean, but there's some, there's sometimes where I just wonder, like, like no way should this person ever see the light of day again when I hear about certain things. I think that's perfectly fine. If there a person is truly so violent, 
that community would not be safe with their release. I understand that. I don't yeah. disagree with that. I think it's case-specific, and it's context-specific. Yeah. Um, but what I'm talking about is that there be a process available for people to use so that both these things exist. A lot of these, these things we don't really know about because we, we're not taking... Um, uh, we're, we're, we're not taking the risk of trying it. We are, we are embedded in these systems that are very old and dated in how we see crime and punishment. You know, it, it's, it's very old in the sense that we're very punitive as a, as a society. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like living, it's almost like when, imagine like when you're at home and you do something that, that you, you do something that's terrible. And I don't know if you've ever gotten into real big trouble with your family. I, I, okay, I'm imagining something. Okay, yeah. you're imagining <laughs> something. Sure, yeah. Imagine if your, your parents, all they did was just punish you for that. And then each time you came back to talk to them about anything, they reminded you. Well, you remember that one time you did not do a good thing. You were bad. Yeah. And they just kept reminding you. Then all you're going to remember is that. That, that that is what defines you. Yeah. But, but your parents don't do that. No, they don't. They forgive you. Yeah. And they encourage you. Well, all I'm saying is, is that why do we treat our family members a particular way? We don't treat our community members in the same way. Um, that's, that, that's what we're asking for, is that that same level of empathy, uh, redemption, make that available for everybody. Because yeah. a lot of the people in the system don't have families. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, actually, the family, you know, comparison is great, but, like, how, how could we do that? Like, like that specifically, kind of like what you're talking about in South Africa, now you bring it into the family. Like, obviously, I wouldn't want somebody to define me based on an action, specifically if it's, you know, smaller. Um, like, but, like, how, how could we do that in, in our communities? Because I would agree with you that that would be something that, like, the system's older, like you said, and we don't want to take the risk or whatever, but, like, what specifically, like, could we do as taking the risk? Let's say I break into your house and I steal a bunch of your stuff, and then you, 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 you come home, you, you get scared, you panic, your sister's with you, she gets scared, she starts to cry, and I run out, and um, you call the police, and they arrest me, and I get charged with burglary. Let's say the system provides you an opportunity not to have me prosecuted for the crime, but for me and you to sit in a room, okay, with people who talk to us about a process, educate us about a process. Uh, you have representative, I have a representative, the community is here, some of your neighbors, and, and you have a conversation about w what my actions did to you emotionally and to your sister and why you're so upset and angry about somebody coming into your home like that how you were scared, how you didn't know whether I was armed, whether I would have committed an act of violence, your sister, and it put you in a position where you were, you had to want to protect your sister and you didn't know what to do, the stress, you know, having your personal space violated, just all of these things where you have a conversation about that with somebody. And I'm in a, in a, in a mind and space and place where I'm ready to listen to that. Yeah. And then I can tell you why I did what I did. 
And maybe in talking to you, you would think like, well, I get it why you did. Maybe I, there's something going on in my life that you could understand and appreciate that's causing me to behave that way. That I never had a father or that my father was in prison when I was growing up. I never had a role model. Nobody was at home telling me when to go to school. Sometimes I'd go to school and I didn't have enough to eat. So I'd run around and take other people's food without their permission. Yeah. So I learned how to take things. I didn't learn how to work for them. And these are the things that I'd learned. And maybe in that process, you would want to say, I just don't think that Muhammad should go to prison for a long time. Or I don't think that he should have to suffer a criminal conviction. And your opinion matters. Yeah. Right? And so I think that there are ways in which we can implement systems for this. A lot of the crimes that occur in our community are like the type of crime I just discussed. Yeah. Now, may, I would say and I would agree there are some crimes that you can't do that with. Like violence. Oh, yeah, totally. Right? Or crimes involving children. But I see what you mean, though. Right? So then you're dealing with a large portion of the uh, crimes that are occurring in your community in an alternative way. Mm-hmm. And then you're reserving the system, uh, the court process and the system, for truly, truly serious offenses. That's a, what I would call an efficient use of resources. Yeah. Does that make I sense? I see what you mean, though. Right? And uh, uh, so I just think that, that we're not thinking creative enough. I think we're, we're, we're a very industrious community. Uh, whenever there's a problem, we find a way to find a solution for it. Uh, and, and your generation especially, you're going to come up with better ways to do things. What, this is an area where your generation could do a lot for this community is to get involved and say, you know what? You guys have been around for a while, parents, grandparents, all of community members. It's time to change things because it's going to be yours. It's not going to be ours. We're going to be moving along dead and gone at some point in our lives. This is, this is yours. Yeah. Um, and I think there are better ways to do it. Yeah. And, but what are, the, like, what are the risks? Like you say, you know, we've had the same system for... How long they just, no one wants to take the risk to change things up? Like, what could be a potential risk of that idea of, like, the sit down, you know, having people around? Because I, I do agree with you that there should be, you know, more, more room for forgiveness and second chances because you don't know. Like, that's a great comparison. At first, I was listening to you, like, someone broke in my house, someone's going to jail. But, you know, it, makes, it, it does make more sense when you, don't, you understand why people do those things. People just don't do certain things because they're evil, like, I want to make sure I'm going to scare some people breaking into the house. So I would agree with you that that's that's something that I think that would be um, understandable, and I would I would totally be happy if that was a thing. But like, what specifically would be like a, a quote risk that we as a society would have to take for that? I mean, the risk is is that uh, you leave that person in the community and you don't put them in prison, and then they do it again. That's the yeah. risk, right? Uh, but I think that we don't really know. I mean, I mean, whether that risk is realized um, uh, depends a, in large part on how much you're willing to invest in the process in the first place. Um, if you're not willing to invest a lot of resources, of, and, and a lot of the resources is not really money. It's time. 
it's people's time and effort. It's you genuinely wanting to get involved. It's people in the community showing up. These aren't very expensive things to do. Yeah. To get people in a room to talk about, you know, what to do. Um, And what what defunding is talking about is say, okay, well, let's say you find out that I have a drug problem, and you say, okay, well, that we can manage. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll make a contract with you, Muhammad. You sign a contract. In this contract, you agree to make a commitment to sobriety, okay, and go get treatment. And then we're going to help you find a job. And we're going to help you, you know, find uh, uh, resources uh, to get a house, right? And then you can help take care of yourselves. So you don't have to break into my house. Right. Right. So that's, you know, what the community can do for the person. Um, But let's say I have a history. Let's say I have a criminal history. I've done this like 10 times already. And this is the 11th time. But the program is new. I mean, do you think I should get I should get a- opportunity to that program if it's never been made available before? Well, I mean, if, you know, I like I said, second chances, now 11th chances are kind of like crazy. But at the same time, if the system wasn't always there, then, I mean, it just depends. Like you said, it kind of depends on the case, depends on the people, depends on this and, and that. That's what the community's got to sit down and discuss yeah. and figure it out and, and work it out. I do think it is a community problem. Like, obviously, there's difficult things with, like, the the system and this and that. But, like, I, I would agree with you that there's kind of, there has been in specific communities, like, cycles of, like, you know, oh, did something wrong, don't care, don't want to hear about the story, going to jail, like, blah, 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 and, like, it happens over and over and over again. I do think that's something that, because, like you said, people need to come together and make decisions, you know, because um, otherwise nothing's going to change. So, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that it's just unfortunate that, like, you know, just now we're realizing specific things or things are coming to light that have always been there. But I do think it's more about, like, people, not about, like, numbers and stats and, like, you did this wrong, this deserves how many years according to the law, bye-bye, like, you know, next. I, I think that I think that you're right. Um, but it is a risk, too, because, you know, if you do send someone off, like, who did something bad, and there is the risk that they're going to be like, okay, great, I'm free, you know, we can do that again, maybe get another chance. Um but it's all about, like, the trust um, and, like, the care that we should have because we only build each other up um, as a community. And if they see that people are caring, um, and if people see that people are caring, it's going to be a, a huge change sooner or later in communities. I agree. Yeah. I think that it's just, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. The more you talk about it kind of, like, makes me understand because, you know, it's just, uh, it's great ideas that some people can be like, what are you talking about? Someone breaks in my house, they totally should go to jail. That's kind of how I was feeling when you first described it, like I said. But um, the more you talk about it, it makes perfect sense that um, things won't get better until people kind of do themselves. The system has to be able to be changed and altered by the people. Um, and I do think it's unfortunate that people don't want to take that, like, quote, like a risk. And I, I understand, but I do think that there should be definitely changes um, throughout the communities and the systems. I agree. Yeah. Um, and I just had a, a, a quick question. Is there specific things that you can't, like, defend? Like, because you were, you were saying, like, um, yeah, for, like, the federal stuff like that, are there specific things that you're not able to, like, specific crimes, oh, that's too small or that's too 
big? Like what specifically are, are common like issues that people have that they come to you and you have to defend them for? So I'm on duty twice a month. Whatever case comes in on that day, those cases are mine. Um, majority of the cases I have are drug cases, computer crimes, and um, and gun cases. What's a computer? Crime? Computer crimes involves uh, child exploitation. Oh, I see. Which is the production, distribution, and possession of images of children being exploited, um, and. I do fraud, which is wire fraud. Mm-hmm. People who like steal money, are accused of stealing money from banks, from other people, uh, credit card scams. I work on gun cases. Uh, people accused of uh, selling large amounts of drugs, not small amounts of drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, the, dr- the the big drug problem that we're having is fentanyl, which is which yeah. is. A serious drug. No, I know. It's bad. It's, yeah, definitely kind of been kicking up lately. It's in heroin and everything like that. Yeah. Getting laced with it. And then also um, uh, immigration crimes. Do you uh, deal with immigration crimes? Yeah, people Even who, up here? Yeah, even up here. People like how who so? Are, people who are here who have been ordered removed mm-hmm. or who have been removed and then uh, who come back into the country. Um, it's a crime. And um, and then reservation cases. So there's a lot of reservations. Lummi, uh, you know, there's a, the Lummi tribal system, and 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 there are multiple tribes up here in the Pacific Northwest. So crimes Definitely. that occur in them on those lands we get as well. And and do you like are, are do specific cases last like longer? Like there's more stuff you put into it. Like I, I would assume a drug case would be smaller time and effort than something like. Maybe like you know your the computer crimes and stuff like that. The fraud cases take the longest. They really? take like two years, three years. Wow. There's so much documentation. Yeah. There's like you know I have cases where I have thirty, forty thousand pages of documents. That's crazy. So um, those take a long time to organize. Jeez, forty thousand pages. Yeah. That's crazy. And and but the other crime, the other cases, they take six months to a year. Even drug charges. Even drug charges. You know to 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 show that somebody's violated a. Uh, a drug statute, you just have to show that they possessed the drug and then they intended to distribute it to somebody. That's yeah. it. And the gun, the gun crimes are same as saying, you just have to show that somebody's so possessed the gun. And they're going to distribute it. Yeah. And like, so what do you mean? Like, so now, now I'm a little confused because you're saying like, you know, things can take two years, things can take six months, but then you're like, what do you mean you're on duty two times a month? Like, does that mean you have a bunch of cases that you're always working on? Yeah, I've a, right now I have about 25 cases. Um, so duty is like the duty day. Each day, they're the courthouse, federal courthouse at 2 o'clock, new arrest calendar. Mm-hmm. So whoever's been arrested that day shows up to court, and it's yeah. a new case. Um, our office assigns an attorney to work on that day. So that's a duty day. I see. On that day at 2 o'clock, whoever is the new arrest, I get appointed to represent them, and then they're my client. And it's just the luck of the draw as to what kind of case it's going to be. So so you have 25, like, active cases. How would you remember, like, I mean, you're, you know, you're defending people. How would you remember, like, I mean, don't you mix up names and, like, what the heck's going on? Like, No, you don't. I mean, you, I've done this long enough where That's crazy. I, I don't do that. But I have also have, like, people who help me. We have paralegals, investigators, 
um, that organize information. We have a centralized database where all their files are kept, and I have a calendar. I know when court hearings are, mm-hmm. and then you just know the cases. I mean, you just it's when you start to do something as regularly as I do, you know, you just remember them. I mean, if you ask your dad who his clients are, and he's got a ton of clients. Yeah, that's true. He'll know who they are. Yeah. I mean, I bet you he'll know what their uh, favorite beer is, some of them. Yeah, probably. <laughs> same thing. Correct. It's the same sort of mentality. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I, I was wondering, because it just seems like so much stuff to remember, especially when you're trying to, like, you know, help. And, and do you have, like, really good relationships with most of them? I mean, like you said, unfortunately, can't as much now, but Yeah, it's you? a challenge now, but, I, I mean, I... I, I from my perspective, I do. I mean, they listen to me when 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 we have to make big decisions, and um, you know, I get involved with my clients. I, you know, it's not just surface type of representation. I call their families. I know their families. I know where they come from. Um, I know their stories. I mean, that's my my job's to tell their stories. You know, my, I try to make this system be the system that I want there to be. Yeah, that's what I try to do with this system. But, you know, it's not that meaningful because I don't, you don't get a lot from it when you go to sentencing. You know, people are still getting an enormous amount of prison time. Um, and, and even if they're coming in and being genuinely honest about what's happened to them, why they are the place they are, you know, people tell them, well, I understand, but uh, I'm going to sentence you to like 7, 8, 10, 12, 14 years in prison. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much that accomplishes, to be honest. Do you think that prison, um, like, times and sentences are too long? Well... I mean, I can't even imagine, like, being... I mean, because maybe it's because I'm younger, but, like, seven years in prison, that's, like, that's an unbelievable amount of time. That, that is a long time. The problem is, is that when you go to prison, there's, not, there's only so much you can do in prison to become a better person when you get out. Yeah. Uh, because people don't want to invest in prisons. The prisons are extremely underfunded. How so? There's, they don't have enough money to do all uh, well, the things. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's what it means, but I'm saying, like, what what could happen in prisons to they could have They could have, they could invest lots of money into teaching people trade skills, you know, uh, construction, you know, being becoming a machinist, electrician, plumbing work, and then... To basically kind of have school. Yeah, basically teach them how to set them up for housing. Yeah. Work inside to set them up for housing when they get out. Provide resources and housing, stable housing. Find them a job. So when they get out, they can immediately get into housing, immediately get a job, and start to uh, provide for themselves. You know, help them provide um, uh, medical insurance. So when they get out, they can get into treatment and continue to get treatment. And that's not happening at all? No. There's not, a lot of that does not happen. And that's what I was saying back kind of to the cycle thing throughout the world. It's like, I totally think, I, I agree with you that that would be great because then you don't have people coming out of prison having nothing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I always, always, I've always wondered, like, like, holy crap, like, people going to prison, you know, for like 20 years. That's like, I'm not even 20 years old yet. Like, that's crazy time. Yeah. I just... Yeah, and I wonder, too, like, don't people learn, like, after a few years, maybe? Like, if they're, like, really, like, you know, I don't know. I just, it's crazy. Well, I mean, I'll ask you. If you got a 20-year prison sentence right now for selling 
large amounts of drugs, and let's say what's a large amount of drug? Let's say you were selling, um, um, right now you could get up to 20 years imprisonment if you had Kilo? A kilo of heroin. You get twenty years for kilo. Yeah, a kilo of, of cocaine, a kilo of methamphetamine. Is that like a like is that like a max or is it no. like if I was actually on the street, someone pulled me? Over if you, if you were them. pulled over with a kilo of methamphetamine, you would do a minimum of ten years. Whoa. Okay, and then yes. and the minimum of ten years, and if you had a gun in your car, that's another five more, so that's fifteen. Jeez. So let's imagine you just got a fifteen-year prison sentence. Okay. And you're just gonna go into federal prison and do 15 years. Mm-hmm. At some point, when the prison is not providing you with resources to improve yourself, what are you gonna do? You're gonna sit around, and you're gonna be sitting there with your thoughts, and you're not gonna be accomplishing anything. Yeah. And then, how much does it cost to keep you in there? Thirty-five to forty thousand dollars a year. That was that much for each yeah. person. For each person. Really? Yeah. Oh wow. Seems like an issue that somebody should definitely get on. I mean, I didn't know about that. I mean, how much could you, how much, how much could a person in South Seattle benefit from thirty-five to forty thousand dollars of college tuition? A lot. A lot. You could put a lot of kids through college. It costs, I think, six thousand dollars a year for in-state to go to University of Washington. You could put a lot of people in uh, college. This is about choices. You know, people in power are making choices. They, you know, they that these are the priorities that they have, um, and and which goes back to the main point about defunding the police. We're tired of you making resource-based decisions in ways that are not helping our communities. Or, so, besides the you know, the housing units, the the mental health institutions, do you, do you think some of the money, if we were going to cut the budgets, should be put into prisons, stuff like that? for programs like schools and stuff like that to not have people sit around and waste the money that we could be putting somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, it just depends. I mean, to me, I also think it's it's very case-specific, but if you have a young person going to prison at the age of 18, 19, 20, who's doing a 10-year prison sentence, I would want to make sure that that person can get out at the age of 30, be able to immediately get into a union, immediately get a job in doing electrical work or something along those lines and be able to find housing and have medical insurance. That's what I want. I would agree. Because to me, then it's a waste of my t- 10 years money that you, you put this guy in prison for. Yeah. You know, what's well, the it point? It is. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. So I, so I, I just want to make sure it's cost-effective use of my money. I mean, your yeah. money, everybody's money. It's our money. Yeah. Well, what can the people do to change, like, stuff like that like like what could we as a society do you mentioned that you know you guys are going to move on it's going to be our time like what could my generation do like for for like the prison stuff like that for the like housing units in certain communities like what specifically because it's right now it's controlled by i mean the people making the laws politicians this and that like what what could we do well what you can do is for the state system for the department of corrections here in mm-hmm. washington you run for state office yeah. And you look for politicians who back your views. And when you turn 18, you go get, I mean, you and your friends. If you guys reached out, I bet you, you think you know about 5,000 people? Jeez. 
I mean, maybe 5,000 yeah. is a lot take, of people. Take, like, say, 10 people. Okay. 10 of your closest friends. Cool. I'll take them. Okay. Them my head. All right. Mm-hmm. So do you think they know at least... Oh, I see. Four to five hundred oh, people. Yeah, we would get some people. Right. So, so way. if you take four or five hundred people, then that's times you know ten. Yeah. You have four to five thousand people. Yeah. Right. And you go to them and you go and talk to them and say, "Hey, look, we want to start a group, and we would like to ask you to be a member of our group. And our group is about responsibly spending our money when you put people in prison. That if you're going to put somebody in prison, you're going to spend those tax dollars in a way that when that person gets out." They have housing, medical insurance. They've been trained and get a job. Yeah. And if you're a politician that supports that, you got four to five thousand votes. And then you go and find a politician that supports that, and you, got and more. you get them to run for office. Yeah. And then you support that politician, and you go out and you go to door to door, and you knock on a door, and you explain to them why this politician would be good for them, and and you get people elected into office. Yeah. That's what you do, or you run for office yourself, and you start small. You know, you do a local office, something uh, maybe on the school board, um, and then you go look for city council. I mean, these are the things that you do. Uh, and when you do that, then you can effectuate change. It's actually very easy to effectuate change if you use the process, if you get a bunch of people together and you go vote, you participate, um, you can get it done. You know, so I expect to see your name on a ballot. I might have to. I've been super into um ever since everything's going on, into politics and stuff like that. Because there's been a lot of stuff. I'm like, what the heck is going on? Like, I would totally try to help out this like this area, and especially now after this entire um, talk that we've had. It's kind of like, geez, like I don't understand why that's not already happening. Like, I would totally, <laughs> I would totally be someone that would step up and do that because it makes perfect sense the way you're describing it. Yeah, you can definitely effectuate change if you just get people. I mean, Barack Obama's presidency was a consequence of a bunch of people just doing just that. Yeah. I mean, from if you follow his route from where he went from in Illinois to the, to the Senate to the presidency, it just was that. It was just a bunch of people getting into a room and saying, hey, look, let's do something about this. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, that's what, that's what needs to happen. The reason it doesn't happen, Lachlan, is that people don't vote, people don't participate. You know, the last election that we had in 2016, and I'm only using the presidential election as an example, we only had 40% of the uh, voting qualified population vote. Like 18 and up? Yeah. Well, I mean, you you can't vote unless you're not 18. Yeah. You're saying like 40% of the people, let's let's just, anybody who's not... Under like anybody's under eighteen is out of the picture. Like let's just say the population's eighteen and over. Yeah. So forty percent of the population. Yeah. Somewhere along, uh, let me rephrase. Somewhere between forty and sixty percent is who actually went out and voted. So you had conservatively forty percent of the population not vote, who was eligible to vote. Why do you think that is? Because people don't give a crap. People don't take responsibility for their communities. And they don't appreciate the fact that the way you want to take responsibility for the community is who do you vote to put into office. And then a lot of people sit on the sidelines and complain about, I'm not happy with the system. Well, what did you do? Have you voted? Are you going down? Are you talking to your local elected official? Have you written a letter? Have they not responded to your letter? 
Have you gathered some of your community members and gone and said, hey, we demand a response. Do you want our vote next time? Yeah. That's what you have to do. You know, I come from the Middle East. In the Middle East, there is no full and fair elections Mm -hmm. in Iran. It's an autocracy. It's people controlling people who are in power. And the way people in power stay in power is by making sure you're not interested in politics. If you're not interested in politics, then the person who's in power gets to do whatever they want because they're never held accountable. Yeah. You know, and so the fact that people don't get out and learn what's going on, you know, they hear something and they say, oh, it's a lie, oh, it's the truth. They don't know. You have to go read. You have to go study and reach your own conclusion and then ask yourself, well, why did this person say this thing the way they said it when I know it not to be true now? Yeah. What is their motivation? People don't do that enough. They need to. It's all available. Yeah, people I mean, don't want to listen. It least. is not that hard to figure out yeah. something is truth or something is false. A good example is that there are a lot of things that are said in politics that are clearly lies. Easily you can figure out that, that they're a lie. But people just assume that no. What, what do you think? The, what do you think is the biggest lie that you what people would hear and that a lot of people believe? Um, the in bi- politics, this idea that uh, the government is some conspira- conspiracy, like the deep state, is conspiring against the people. It's the biggest lie there is. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. Mm-hmm. I have represented people in very complex conspiracies, conspiracies to commit very serious crimes. Do you know how hard it is to keep a conspiracy secret? Probably pretty hard. Have you ever tried to have seven people keep a secret? Impossible. Eight, nine? Especially in my age. Yeah. Somebody's going to talk. Somebody will. And the fact is, is that you're talking about some federal government agencies that are tens of thousands of people, this idea that there's like some conspiracy to keep something hidden from the public is, is just, is nonsense. These are people, same people from your communities and my communities, they're citizens. There's, there's no big conspiracy. I do wonder about that sometimes when the people talk about like, yeah, the government stuff, it's like, okay, if that was true, there's no way that all these people in all these places will be able to keep their mouth shut about everything. So that's the biggest lie, that there's some grand conspiracy by the government against people to, to corruption and secret. It, it, this, you know, it, it just, to me, that's, that's just nonsense. Yeah. And people believe it, and I can't believe it that people believe it. And then, they, and then what they do, what does it do? It makes people not have confidence in the system, and people don't vote. Yeah, I mean, 40% is kind of a whoa. And maybe people don't vote. Maybe the people who are in power, who are really benefiting from this system, don't want people to vote. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. Well, that was a great conversation to have. Um, Really glad that you got to come in. It was definitely, a like I said, a podcast I was really looking forward to. It was good to hear. And like I said, being open-minded as I am, I, I... I love to hear about things that I hear all the time, like defund the police, you know, this and this. And I really didn't really know. Um, so it's great to hear it from somebody who, you know, obviously knows and your ideas and stuff that, like I said at first, 
maybe have been like, what? But now it's like totally makes sense. Um, so yeah, it was, it was great to have you on. Hopefully to have you back soon, sooner or later. And I hope that uh, sooner or later that just everything can come back to normal, which I don't know how it's going to work out. Like we said before this, don't know about the schools, this and that. Um, but you know, it's kind of just every day is a new day. You kind of have to live through it. Um, but the moral of the story is we're all people. We all have to like be there for each other. So whatever happens, I don't know. I just hope that the world can end up being able to stick together positively because that's what we need right now with everything going on. It's just crazy. But, um, yeah. But thank you for coming on. It means a lot. Um, and uh, I hope to see you again very soon. Thank you for having yes. me. Have faith. Of everything course. will be just fine.